So how long does a bee typically live? A summer honey bee lasts about six weeks, three weeks working inside the colony and three weeks working outside of the colony. Unless there's some stress that changes that whole dynamic. Uh, stress such as pesticides, uh, an animal, uh, a farmer sprays a field nearby, uh, a home gardener uses and say, uh, seven insecticide on his vegetables. Okay. Any one of those things can be taken back to the, the colony. So one um, bee can bring that back and kill off 35,000. That's correct. It'll affect the whole group. And uh, what happens is that the, the number of bees that are out foraging will then start to decrease. The bees will die off because of these stresses. And the bees inside then have to step out and become outside bees. And the number starts declining, declining, declining with fewer workers to do the job. And eventually all those stresses on the system will interrupt it to the point of making the colony die out. Worldwide, we're losing a third of our bees every year, so a third of them have to be replaced. Uh, at one time, you didn't have to do that. These stresses weren't there. But outside influences have come in now so that the, the bee population is going down, down, down. Unless we interfere from the outside, us, the beekeeper, uh, bees will eventually die out. Okay. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful uh, statement there, right? Unless there's intervention from the outside, the bee population may eventually die out. Good morning, welcome uh, to Central. We're continuing our series, Hive Mind, where today we're looking at colony killers, the things that threaten the hive, the greatest threats that group face. My name's Craig, and this is my wife, Ipka, and we're going to be pleased just to journey uh, with you through this topic from Romans uh, chapter 1. Now, the beekeeper there is actually talking about something referred to as CCD, or Colony Collapse Disorder, CCD. Colony collapse disorder is basically a term that is used to describe the sudden and the mass disappearance of worker bees from a colony. And according to a March the 27, 2015 study, which was published in the Science Magazine, there are essentially three prominent factors to the collapse of a colony. There are three distinct threats. Parasites, pesticides, and poverty. Parasites. A parasite is essentially this tiny mite that finds its way into the hive, and then it can basically wipe out an entire bee population, a parasite. Pesticide is another word for a toxin or a poison. And even in small doses, this toxin can actually disorient a bee and therefore can cause the hive to collapse. And thirdly, you have poverty. That is basically a term that the scientists will use to describe the impact of changes in farming practices that means that bees don't now have the access to the food sources that they once used to have. So three threats. Parasites. Another name for that is an enemy. Pesticides. A poison. And thirdly, we have the environmental changes. Think about that in the context of the church. Because there is a parallel there. Parasite, an enemy. The Bible talks about this spiritual enemy that we face. In Ephesians 4 last week, we talked about the mind 
being often controlled by sin. Sin is portrayed in Ephesians 4 and in the passage we look at today, Romans 1, as a malfunction of the mind. And Paul says the problem with this is the malfunctioning of the mind allows the enemy, the devil, a foothold. We have a spiritual enemy. Secondly, we're talking about pesticides. We're talking here about poison. What the Bible, especially in the New Testament, talks a lot about is poisoned thinking. And this poisoned thinking can actually bring the hive of God, the church, down. The challenge in this series has been for us to collectively choose the mind of Christ. Because if we don't, poisoned thinking can destroy the church. Thirdly, the environment. There is a spiritual environment. The church is a spiritual environment that we are called to grow in. If we are not getting our food sources, our spiritual nourishment in the way we should, it could bring the hive down. So, what is true in the, the natural world of the beehive is also true in the supernatural world of the church. We face three threats a spiritual enemy. We face the threat of poisoned thinking, and we also face the threat of an unhealthy spiritual environment. Now, the big idea that Vipker and I want to unpack today is this. The greatest threat that we face is not in the presence of danger itself. Jesus has said, I will build my church, and nothing, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against it. The greatest threat we face is not the presence of danger. Joel just referred to Jesus in John, saying, hey, you will have trouble in the world. That's a guarantee. Danger is guaranteed. That's not the greatest threat that we face. No, the greatest threat that we face is actually in our unwillingness to identify the danger properly. That's the greatest threat. The unwillingness to identify the danger properly, and secondly, once we've identified it, our willingness to respond to it appropriately. So listen, to be a part of a group, to be a part of a church, to be a part of a nation is going to expose us to threats and danger. That shouldn't overwhelm us. What the challenge is, is to identify the threat properly and to respond to it appropriately. And so with that in mind, let's have a look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 18 through verse 32. And let's remember the foundation laid last week that in Romans 1 and Ephesians 4, sin is presented as a malfunctioning of the mind. And today we're going to talk about the corrupted or the darkened mind and a mind that leads to, when it's been poisoned, that leads to an unhealthy spiritual environment because there are unhealthy behaviors that creep in. That's the idea today. So let's have a look at this, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, we sang about that in the first song, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. 
But their thinking became futile in their foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The darkened mind. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Notice where this is going. The depraved mind, the darkened mind, through poisoned thinking, lack of sight, actually results in toxic behavior, bad behavior. They have become filled, therefore, with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them, the darkened or the corrupted mind. I have a friend who does not watch the news ever. She says she cannot handle seeing and hearing about all the assaults, murders, criminal activities, and tragedies that take place each and every day all over the world. She says it brings her down. Now, I think somehow we can most understand that mindset and where she's coming from, yet we also understand that these things do happen on a daily basis, and ignoring them is not going to, to deal with it. But just look at last week, out of hundreds and thousands of examples, I was just looking at three things. On Tuesday, there was a shooting in a shopping mall in Florida, which resulted in two people dying and two people being injured. On Thursday, I saw the headline that uh, in Louisiana, a United States Postal Service manager, um, he stole $630,000 worth of stamps to pay for his gambling addiction. That's a lot of stamps, if you ask me. <laughs> and then, of course, Hurricane Michael has been on everybody's mind and heart this week. Actually, we spent our spring break in that region where the hurricane hits, and it's just devastating to think about the people there. And I know that my friend is not the only one who doesn't watch the news or doesn't want to know about it. Yet even those of us who don't want to know what is happening each and every day, we still ask ourselves, why are these things happening? And this is where Paul has this argument in Romans 1. And he says, resistance to God, spiritual rebellion, results in a corrupted and darkened thinking. And that, again, results in bad behavior. And we've just heard about some of these bad behaviors. And this morning, you're going to hear that phrase, corrupted mind or darkened mind, quite often. And these are two interchangeable words that the Bible uses to talk about the same concept. So when we have a twisted or distorted view of God, of who he is, we misunderstand what flourishing in life really looks like. We don't see ourselves, we don't see our choices, the world around us, and even society properly. 
our view is distorted. And just to talk about that concept of a distorted view, I need a little helper, and I've got a little helper over there. So would you mind coming up? Let's just grab this microphone, too. Coming on your own over, Mom? On your own, come on up. Awesome. I know this is a very scary place, I agree. Would you tell everyone your name? My name's Sammy Lynn. Hello, Sammy. Thank you for coming and helping us. Can I ask you two questions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What color is your hair? Brown. Brown? It's very pretty. What about your dress? Orange. Orange, yes. What about mine? It's like a bumblebee, right? Yeah. Let's walk over there. There's a mirror. Come with me. Come have a look in the mirror. Is that who you? Is that you? Is that Sammy? Pretty. Is that what you looked like this morning when you left the house? Mm-hmm. Cool. Let's go over there. I may have to lift you up. <laughs> okay. Let's have a look. Ooh. Can you see yourself in this mirror? Yeah. Yeah? Can you see yourself? Yeah. Does it look a little bit funny? Yeah. A little bit blurry? Yeah. Sometimes we say the word distorted. Is it still you in there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you so much for helping this morning. That's your mom. Thank you. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> So the image was distorted, was a little blurry, was a little off. Still the same person, but just not quite right. And so it's the same concept when we have that distorted or twisted view of who God is. We can't see clearly. And that often results in bad or toxic actions. And that leads us to the first point. Spiritual rebellion results in corrupted or darkened thinking. That's that word again, right? Spiritual rebellion results in corrupted and darkened thinking. Let's look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so Paul says here that wrong thinking, wrong thinking altogether brings chaos First of all, in our relationship with God, then with one another, and with society at large. And I'm mindful with how often Romans 1 is being used. And as we get started on this first point, I want to talk about what the darkened mind is not before we even talk about what it is. And if you've fallen asleep to this point, please wake up now, because this is really important. Mental health issues are not the result of of spiritual rebellion. So mental health issues are not the result of spiritual rebellion. So people who struggle for mental health issues, they often feel like their life, their day-to-day experience, and especially their mind can be really hopeless and actually dark. And a lot of people use that word or that phrase, dark, for for their experience, for their day-to-day experience. And Craig just mentioned that Sin can be the expression of a malfunctioning mind, but we want to make very clear that we're not talking about mental health here. 
I recently heard that one in four adults in, in America struggles for mental health issues. That's a quite a big number, right? 20 to 25% of all US adults struggle for mental health issues. And they can look very differently. So sometimes we hear about bipolar, schizophrenia, um, anxiety is a really big one, personality disorder, depression, seasonal depression, especially in, in areas like this with, with long winter months, um, OCD, and so many more. Anorexia nervosa, for example, that's something I've struggled with as a teenager. That's a very serious um, mental health disorder. I think it's got the highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders. People either die by starvation or by suicide. Pretty serious. And for me, it took many, many years to overcome that. But when I look back, what was actually harder than the eating disorder was the years that followed the eating disorder. I struggled from depression, severe depression. And I think what was really hard for me at the time was that inside the church and outside the church, I did not feel it was safe to talk about it. Didn't feel it was something people were open to talk about. I felt actually that they viewed mental health issues like depression through that darkened mind lens that we're just talking about. And what that did, that, was, that created a spiritual environment that was not helpful for the vitality of the church. That was not helpful for my vitality. And so that's why I'm really, really um, passionate about this point that we hear that. And I find that bizarre sometimes that we are very free to talk about stuff, illnesses that we have, maybe long-term illnesses like a heart disease or lung disease. We talk about the treatment plans we have, the doctors we see, the medications we take. take. But the minute it comes to mental health, that's just slightly different. And there's still a little bit of a wall. Even last week, somebody said to me, here at the church, I feel like a second-class Christian because I struggle with this. Can I just say that is wrong and that has to change? Amen? Amen. And we are talking with the Beehive series, we're talking about collective thinking. So can we change this collectively? Yes? Our dream, our dream as a staff too, is that every person who walks in here on a Sunday morning, whether they're old or young, whether they're rich or poor, whatever skin color they have, whatever tongue they speak, um, whether they're educated or not educated, sick or healthy, that they would feel loved and welcome here. Is that your dream too? Mm -hmm. Amen. And that includes, of course, people that struggle with mental health issues, and I include myself in that. And I wanna just say I live a full and productive life, and I'm not ashamed of it, and so shouldn't you be. And I mentioned mental health issues so much because for many of us, the experience is that of it being dark. There can be really dark moments. And I just wanna say that again, we struggle enough with blame and shame. And let's not um, think that the evil behaviors are a result of mental health issues. So don't add any more of that blame and shame to it. But what does? Spiritual rebellion always results in corrupted thinking. So the rebellion, spiritual rebellion. When I thought about the word rebellion, um, I just had to think of, of something that happened many years ago. 
when we were first married, we lived in London. We were in a great church there, and we were really blessed to be in a great small group with lots of other couples, and most of them were like 10 years older. We were in our mid-20s, just started off with life and having kids and all that. And so it was really helpful to learn from them. And I remember us being part of a game night one night. And it was one of those games that I would not play again now, because <laughs> I still remember it, um, <laughs> where people had to assess each other and ask, answer questions about the group. And so that particular night, the question was this, who in the room is the most rebellious one? And everybody pointed at me and looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> And I had grown up in a non-Christian home, in a non-Christian German culture, and emancipation, independence, those kind of things were kind of considered pretty good. And so for me, I didn't want to be a pushover. I kind of thought it was pretty cool to be the rebel. But in the years since then, I've gotten to know God so much better and got to love Him more. And that issue of rebellion has changed dramatically in my life. Submission to God's authority and Christ's lordship, they are huge now. They have like the sweet aroma. The Bible talks about the sweet aroma. When I surrender to him, when I trust him, obey him, I don't lose freedom. I gain it, and I gain joy. So often when I share and celebrate recovery about changes that have taken place in my life, I refer often more to addiction or depression but when I looked at this part, I was thinking, this is actually even bigger, change of heart, change of who I am. So when we talk about spiritual rebellion leading to corrupt and darkened thinking, we're talking about rebelling against God's authority, about the authority of his word, doing it our way instead of his way. Um, and that doing it this way it leads to us losing perspective. Yeah, and that leads us to the second point, really, which is that Romans 1 describes this progression to corrupted thinking. So corrupted or darkened thinking actually begins with spiritual rebellion. It's that darkened mind. That darkened mind has nothing to do with mental health issues, but it has everything to do with a perspective of God and of ourselves that is actually warped. It's not as clear as it should be. And Romans 1, the power of Romans 1 is it actually talks about the progression of this. So we see this in verses 22 and 23, where Paul begins to introduce this progression. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Notice that there's a progression here. It wasn't like that. There is this progression that happens. There is this slide that happens. And the consequence is they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. In view here is probably the story of the Exodus where Moses goes up to meet with God on the mountain of Mount Sinai. And while he's up there, the people are fashioning God out of, a, out of gold. There's this slip, there is a slide. It, it didn't just happen like this. There was this slide into it. There was this progression. Well, what is that progression like? 
Well, in Romans chapter 1, we basically see five movements into this corrupted mind, and I want to go through those with you very quickly. The first one is this. What we see is God reveals Himself. The passage begins with natural revelation about how you can look at the world, the stars, everything God has created, and you get this sense that God is So God reveals Himself in a general way, and as time goes on through the Scriptures in a more specific way, God clearly reveals Himself. But then something happens. Then there is our rebellion. That means people refusing to give God glory or to be grateful for who God is and what He's done. And in Scripture, this refusal is portrayed in terms of rebellion. Now, rebellion takes two forms, essentially. Firstly, it's part of our nature, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 27, but it's also a part of the choice that we make. That's Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Choose this day who you will serve. We have this choice. So, God reveals Himself, but then we rebel. It's a part of our nature in Adam. We've all fallen. We're partakers of the old nature. In Christ, we become partakers of the new nature. To the old is given the new. But there's this rebellion, and this rebellion is a part of our nature, but it's also part of our choice. The difference between us in our Christian state to us before we were Christians is that now we can choose. Part of this series is to encourage us to consciously choose the mind of Christ. We have the choice. Rebellion is a choice. The result of continued rebellion is that we become, we become hard in heart, Ephesians 4, but we also become darkened in mind. This is Romans chapter 1. Our minds become futile, become darkened. Our hearts become futile. In Deuteronomy 31 verse 17, the result of Israel's rebellion is portrayed as lifelong rebellion. These are the words of Moses in that verse. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Even now, while I am still with you, Moses says, you have rebelled against the Lord. And then he ends the verse with a statement, not a question. He says, how much more rebellious will you be after my death? It's incredibly true as you look through the Scriptures that God puts a leader, a prophetic figure on the scene to challenge people's rebellion. Think about Nehemiah. While Nehemiah was with the people, they did right. The minute that Nehemiah went back to the king, the people went their old way. Moses here in Deuteronomy 31, 17 says, how much more rebellious will you be after I'm gone? So, the result of this rebellion is lifelong rebellion where our hearts become hard and our thinking becomes darkened. And what happens then is we replace what is true with what is a lie. And there's a replacement that goes on. What God says is true and right and honorable and just, we replace with what we consider to be honorable, true, right, and just. How do we do that? Remember the images? Our perspective has been warped. And then lastly here, the end of this in Romans 1 is that God makes a response, and His response here is that three times He says, I'll give you over. So, we go through this process, and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you over to your darkened mind, to your sinful desires, and see where this takes you. Now, as you read this, it's likely that you think, why on earth would God do that if He loves me? Why would God just give me over like that if He loves me? And the answer, and the simple way to answer this question is probably to refer you to Judges chapter 6. 
Judges chapter 6 is the story of Gideon. And God used Gideon to um, bring Israel out of being a kind of uh, suppressed by the Midianites. But in Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, we read these words. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the result? God, and for seven years, God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So God's response to this in Romans 1, and indeed at numerous points in the Old Testament, is He gives us over to the logical end of the darkened choices that we have made. Now, why would God do that? He does it because in verses 7 and 8 of Judges chapter 6, the people get to the point where they realize the folly of their own ways, how, how darkened their life has become, and they do something. And it says in verse 7 and 8 of Judges 6, when the Israelites cr cried out to the Lord because of Midian. See, God gives us over because He wants us to get to the point where we realize how futile life is without Him. How bad it is when we continue in these choices, and that should bring us to the point where we do what? We cry out to Him. And when we cry out to Him, what does God do? God sent them a prophet. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a stage where I'm crying out to God, I don't necessarily want a prophet. A prophet is a truth teller. The prophet is someone who points out what is wrong in my life and makes it clear for me to see what is wrong and therefore what I need to do. In a sense, Romans 1 functions this way. The people had followed their own darkened mind and their own darkened choices, and it had brought them to a point where they were crying out for help. And what God does is He brings them a prophet. He brings them the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul points out the truth plainly for them to see. And so God hands them over here, not because He doesn't care about them, but precisely because He does. And so God, God hands us over to the, the state of our own darkened mind so that we can see the consequences of our own actions on our lives and therefore on the group that we're a part of. And, and that kind of leads to observation three in the text. And that observation is this, that corrupted thinking leads to an exhaustive list of toxic activity. We're going to look at that activity in just a minute. Let's look at verse 28 again. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And I just mentioned a moment ago my upbringing in, in the German culture with different behaviors and different values. Last Sunday, actually, I got to worship in a church in Kiev in the Ukraine with a team of people that, that went on a mission trip. And even as we walked into the church service, we had that discussion, do we need to cover our heads or not? And so being culturally sensitive and just realizing that different cultures do things differently. That's also true for when we talk about right or wrong, that different cultures or different countries look at things differently. I think we're all aware of that. But I do like how Paul does it here. He actually does it really simple. It's, there's two categories that Paul says. It's either um, it's how we treat God, so the vertical category, and how we treat each other, the horizontal category. And in Romans 1, Paul says that we shatter our relationship, we break that relationship when we refuse to honor him and give him thanks and gratitude. 
And I've always liked that picture of when if God is not on the throne, then something else is on the throne. And, and I like that picture. And it could be that something else can even be something good, something else. It could be our family. It could be other things. But God is the one that deserves the glory and the praise and who, is, who needs to be on the throne. Otherwise, that relationship shatters. So it's the vertical and then it's the horizontal. And when the horizontal, that's where um, the breakdown of relationships happens. And let's look at this list in a minute. And this is what it says here. People who have allowed corrupted thinking to take a foothold in their life are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And Paul continues that such people are also gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And then they invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents, they have no understanding, they have no fidelity, they show no love, and they show no mercy. Sounds a little bit like our society, right? Doesn't it? And when I first looked at it, I kind of looked at some of the big words like murder, and I thought, oh, that doesn't apply to me, or it applies for people out there. And that's not true. Some of these things that we see on the list apply just as much for within the church as it is outside the church. I don't know whether when you saw the list or when I just read it out, maybe something just kind of jumped at you and something maybe stirred in your heart. Maybe there's one thing on there um, that you were kind of drawn to or maybe you struggle with. Maybe you have an ongoing struggle with one of the behaviors on the list. And I want to encourage you to think about what you maybe wrongly believe about God's character that results in some of these actions. Remember, we, we looked at when our thinking is warped about God. Look, remember the mirror with little Sammy. Then often these actions follow. Let's just pick one of them. Let's just pick envy. I think a lot of us can relate to envy. But what, when we think about God's character and how we may be off with our thinking, Okay, envy is we want something that we don't have that maybe somebody else has. That can be something material, but it can also be talents and gifts. It can be maybe family support that, that they have that you don't have. But if, you, if we bring it back to God and think, what about his character do I not see? Do I think that he doesn't love me as much as he loves the person who has what I want? So can we, can we just look at things from that perspective? And Craig said that earlier, the greatest threat that groups face is not the presence of danger, but the unwillingness to identify the danger properly, these dangers, and respond appropriately. And actions like those on the list, they destroy the hive or the church or any group, and these are the real threats to the church. This is the real toxin, the pesticide or the enemy that the enemy is using to bring us down. It's not mental health. It's not people struggling with addiction. It's not people from different cultures. And it's not people that think differently on maybe some current issues. It's those things that destroy the hive. And it's not necessarily the threat from outside, but from within. And we heard that earlier in the little um, video, that sometimes it just takes one bee that brings in the poison that can actually destroy the hive. 
And what can that poison be? It can be that corrupted thinking, that worldly corrupted thinking that we bring in and that we don't question, that we don't deal with. And the longer we've been exposed to certain ways of thinking or grown up, just like I shared earlier, I just grew up that way. To me, that was normal. To me, that was right to be a little bit of a rebel and to question everything. Um, but, but those are the real toxins we're talking about. And evil wears many, many different masks. And sadly, the longer we've embraced the poisons, the harder it is to break free. But it is possible to be, break free from it. And that leads us to the fourth observation. Yeah, when we look at this list, and we've really pulled it out from Romans chapter 1, I wonder how many of us, when we were reading Romans 1, thought, is he going to go on the LGBTQ issue today? Because that's the one that everyone jumps on. That's the one that evangelicals jump on. This kills the hive. This kills the hive. It's not the threat from without. It's not even the addictions and the struggles that people bring in. This kills the hive. And I've got to be honest, there is more of a problem in the church with gossip and slander and envy as there is with some of the addictions that people bring in. This kills the hive. These are the reasons why many people have walked away from the church and will never darken the doors of the church again. And see, this third, uh, this third observation here, or the fourth observation, is simply this. Corrupted thinking results in spiritual blindness. I wonder how many of us are blind to those things on the list that are actually true in our own life. I wonder how many of us actually struggle with gossip, that we talk to people about a topic when the person we're talking to is not a part of the problem and is not a part of the solution. If we do that, we have a darkened mind in this area of our lives. And this is possible because we are spiritually blind. That destroys the hive just as much as some of the addictive behaviors that someone may come in and others may be infected by. Just takes one thing. There's a passage I want to use right now as we try to bring the message home, and it's from Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. You're going to see it on the screen. And what we're going to discover from this passage is that people who don't want to see the truth about God are already blind. If we looked at that list and we could identify something on that list, that's really good. But some of us, we may well not be able to identify something for ourselves, but maybe our spouse or a friend was giving us a dig because they may see it. There's a beautiful passage here in Acts chapter 13 that really uh, tells a story that illustrates what Paul's grappling with in Romans chapter 1. And this is the, this is the text. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil. Remember, spiritual enemy, he's calling out the spiritual enemy here. And an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. 
Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. And this is the judgment. You are going to be blind for a time and not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeing someone to lead, uh, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The truth of this text is the people who don't want to see the truth about God are already blind. Elimus is already blind. See, the judgment on Elimus is an object lesson to all of us who hear what God says and don't put it into practice. It's possible because our thinking is distorted. It's possible because our perspective has been warped. In that regard, we are already blind. What Paul does here is announce under the authority of Christ and a judgment in the physical realm on Elymas' life that is already true in the spiritual. The man is blind. And so Paul helps him to see the consequence in the physical realm of what is true in the spiritual realm. Now, with a number of passages in the New Testament, the opposite is true. In Matthew's gospel, it's rather fascinating that the people who see Jesus more clearly than anyone else are the ones who are physically blind. Every time in Matthew's gospel, what we discover is that there are blind, where there are blind people on the road, they hear Jesus coming and they shout out to Jesus saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. The son of David is a statement of faith. And Jesus looks at them and heals them. In that moment, what happens in Acts 13 is reversed. In Acts 13, someone is blind in the spiritual realm, and the judgment is, I'm going to help you see the consequence of your spiritual blindness. In Matthew's gospel, it's flipped the other way around. These guys are blind physically, but they see so clearly spiritually, and it's as if Jesus makes clear in the physical realm what is already true in the spiritual realm. And the, and the lesson is this, there are none so blind as those who won't see. And the greatest threats that groups face are actually some of the things that we overlook and believe and perceive to be no problem at all. Envy, gossip, slander, malice, rage, hate, anger, bitterness. That's not an exhaustive list in Romans chapter 1. There are other lists in other texts. These are the threats that bring down the hive. And yet, unfortunately, in the church, in the modern world, we are quick to highlight one thing on the list and to neglect the rest. Are we spiritually blind? Are we also culpable to the darkened mind? if we don't listen to the voice of the Spirit of God revealing our own shortcomings to us, then we are. In Celebrate Recovery, it's not uncommon for someone on a Monday night to wear a T-shirt that says, I am one of those people. I love that T-shirt. Because when we read the Bible in its entirety, what we discover is 
There is work that God needs to do on each and every one of us. But because there's work that God needs to do, that doesn't mean to say that we're a danger to the hive. The only time we're a danger to the hive is when we refuse to deal with our issues and we try to infect other people with our infectious behavior. Now, if that's us, and I hope we recognize the sin is the great leveler here and Jesus is the great Savior, that God's mercy is rich, His mercy is free. I hope we realize that God's grace is here to transform us all. God's grace takes broken people and makes them whole. So what do we need to do if we recognize that there is an area of our life that is broken and in need of God's help? That there is behavior that we've tolerated that may bring down the hive. What do we need to do? I think Judges chapter 6 tells us this. We need to cry out to God. And as we cry out to God, what he'll do is he'll bring the truth. And when he brings the truth in that moment, what we need to do is to surrender to it. And we'd like to end this service today by getting you to listen to a song that Hannah and Bree will lead us in. Those of you who will have gone to the Lauren Daigle concerts in Grand Rapids this week, you may well be familiar with this song. It's on her new album. It's a song called Rebel Heart. I love the words of this song. It says, Lord, I offer up this rebel heart. And the song progresses through to actually bring us to the point where we give ourselves fully in surrender to God himself. As you listen to these words, let me just encourage you to deal with any rebel-like behavior that you notice in your, in your immediate environment. And as you listen to these words, just say, God, I do what Lauren Daigle is singing about in this song. I just offer my rebel heart to you. And I just ask that you change my perspective on this and that you would actually bring me and my mind to that enlightened state where I will become more like Jesus.